off and happy dog training and welcome to another episode of Dog Talk. Today we're going to talk about creating motivation. And motivation is the most important thing when it comes to training dogs. As my friend Ivan Balabanov likes to say, without motivation we have nothing. And that is 100% true. So without motivation we have nothing. We need to have the right motivation. But what does that mean? So let's talk about the different types of motivation and I'll give you a couple of examples. So you can probably implement it, or hopefully implement it um, when you train your dog and focus on it more when you train your dog because a lot of the problems that most people have with their dog are related to motivation. So for example, when you teach your dog to walk nicely by your side, let's say you taught it with a heel command and then there's a squirrel running up the tree. We talked about this example in many other podcasts, but that is a motivational difference. There is the value you have given walking by your side, and then there's the value of a squirrel up the tree. There's a difference. There's a motivation to do one, there's a motivation to do the other. And motivation to chase the squirrel outweighs the motivation to walk next to you. It's a differential difference in terms of how you've reinforced it and how much you can reinforce that just by using positive reinforcement techniques, which is how you usually train it, um, at least in the initial stages. So, but motivation can come in two forms, or comes in two forms. There is the motivation to do or get something, and then there's the motivation to avoid something. And they're both important, and they're both powerful. And when you put them together, that's when you get the best results. When you're trying to focus just on one of them, the results are going to be less ideal. So if I just focus on the motivation to want to do something, I'm going to run up against the limits of that. So this would be basically positive reinforcement. And positive reinforcement, or the biggest problem with positive reinforcement is how well it works until it doesn't. <laughs> so that's... Um, that's not, I didn't come up with this. I think, uh, I think it's a dog trainer named Pat Stewart. I heard him say it in the seminar, which is a great, it's a great quote. So um, the problem with positive reinforcement is how well it works until it doesn't. But you're running up against the limits of the motivation you can accomplish at some point. Now, with some dogs, you won't. I mean, I have, personally, I have a dog, Nubia, I mentioned before. She will not leave my side. Um, even if there's a rabbit or a squirrel running up the tree, she takes an interest, and I go, Nubia, and she'll stop. And I didn't have to do anything to train that. She came this way, which is pretty awesome. So uh, how lucky am I? But that's the only dog I've ever met who was like that that I personally had in my entire dog-owning life. And I know other people who have dogs that will just like not care about anything other than them. And you can create that in training as well, obviously, but it's not as common. So there's going to be a limit at some point of how much motivation your dog will have to do what you ask them to do compared to something else, a competing reinforcer, a competing motivator in the environment that they take an interest in. So you have to work against that. But you're always going to encounter that limit at some point, wherever it is. It's going to be very few dogs that will not have a limit in that regard, that they will just do what you tell them to because of just reinforcement strategies and positive reinforcement strategies you've used in training. Um, it's not that it never happens, it does sometimes, but it's the minority. The you know, majority of dogs that people have 
will at some stage, no matter how much motivation you put in, find something in the environment they'd rather do, rather pursue, rather chase, rather go after, rather investigate. So there's that. So it's going to be a little bit. Um, on the avoiding side of things, so the, the motivation to avoid something, that would generally be considered an aversive. And an aversive is anything that you, you'd rather not experience. So it, it don't think of it the most extreme examples. People always tend to think of the worst thing you can possibly come up with. But a dog pulling on the regular collar is aversive. Right? Dog pulling on the harness is aversive. It's, it's aversive in a sense of, well... <laughs> You'd rather not have that resistance that you're feeling. You'd rather not feel that. Um, if you stand there in a t-shirt and you're not paying attention and the leaf falls down the tree, brushes up against your arm, and you twitch away, it's an away response, a completely natural biological response because you don't know what it is in that moment. Right? If you looked at it the whole time and you saw the leaf falling, you wouldn't like shy your arm away. You just like either move it calmly or you let it just happen and enjoy the sensation if that's what you like. Um, but because it was surprising, you have an away response. So in that moment, that was aversive. So think of it in, in terms of that, something that is just your, your body avoids naturally or would like or would prefer to avoid. So don't get hung up on the word too much. Uh, but that's what aversive per se is, right? You can get used to them and they can become less aversive. And if you see them coming, they may not be aversive. And if you don't see them coming, something harmless may be aversive. So it, it varies on context. It varies on lots of things. Um, there's obviously a prime biological response, and then there's what we have conditioned ourselves to tolerate. And some people like tense units, some people don't. So, but that's an away response. So an away response could be, I don't want to feel the sensation of that collar, or I don't want to run into that long line, or I don't want to feel the stimulation of the e-collar, or I think that rattlesnake's biting me back because somebody trained that with an e-collar and, and taught the dog that, well, the rattlesnake will hurt you. Yeah? without the dog actually getting bitten. That's the typical way of training rattlesnake avoidance training. Um, the dog gets a e-collar stimulation when they approach the sound, the sound, the sight, or the smell of a rattlesnake to teach the dog, well, approaching rattlesnakes is a really bad idea. Let's not do that. And then the dog learns to stay away from these little things, and, uh, or big things sometimes, and stays alive on the trail and will never uh, get bitten, per se, again. But that, that these would be a motivation to avoid. So rattlesnake avoidance training, prime example. Now, obviously, that could be applied to other scenarios, like tail mutilation, chasing cars, or even sprinkler heads, or whatever. Right. So it, it could be things that we can't have that are dangerous to the dog or dangerous to other people where this comes in. So and and there's many other examples. Just just a couple. So we have a motivation to avoid, and we have a motivation to get and have. And if you do them incorrectly, so if you approach either one of them incorrectly, you're going to create problems for yourself. So you can create really bad problems with just um, motivation to have. So when you have, um, let's call it positive motivation, um, you, you could have a lot of problems with aggression if you have a super high um, food-motivated dog and you all of a sudden cut them off. It goes through an extinction event, and aggression could be a response. Or you could have a total obsession that was created just with food. The dog can't function unless you have food and blows you off because you have no value if you don't have food. So you've created a real problem with motivation, um, with, with positive motivation. 
we recently had a service dog. I still have, actually, it's about to be finished. But we have a service dog in training who was initially trained by the owner. And she did a good job. But she used food. And she ran into the limits of that um, with food. And she created, basically, a food obsession in the dog. And the dog's a lab, so it's already food obsessed to begin with. Most labs are, right? And we had to fix that. Because he couldn't work. He wouldn't do anything unless she was carrying a treat pouch around. And then the first time he went home and she didn't need a treat pouch, he was like, oh my God, this is awesome. <laughs> so we, it took a while, but we got this out of him and completely switched him to a play modality and play that happens later. So he has to work first and he gets the reward after. So we shift the entire um, positive motivation around. And that, that was really just redirecting or teaching him something else could be a blast and could be more fulfilling than food and then the dog would start to work for that and he started to understand that you only get it after you work and so there's a lot of that had to be done to make it happen but we had to basically undo that and repair that because there was an excess of food training which is very common um, with a pet it's fine right? so it's like I think most dog owners don't care if they have to carry treats around or have treats everywhere for their dog and their dog just does it if you crinkle a treat bag or something um, I forgot who said this. It's another trainer, actually well-known trainer. It's one of one of the Learberg DVD. Um, is it Finn? No, I forgot the name. But he said in a in a podcast one, the only person who cares that you faded the lure is another dog trainer. So I think that's probably true. Most dog owners don't care that they need to give treats to their dogs or give a reward to their dogs to get them to do stuff. It's it's not really that big of a problem to most people. It is to some, and it is certainly with working dogs. It's not acceptable with service dogs. It's not acceptable with police and military and other working line operations, like a sport dog. It's, it's just not done with food during the activity. So there's, there's plenty of scenarios where that's not okay. But with a pet in the home, I think most people are fine with it. It's, um, I think dog trainers are the ones more obsessed with it than dog owners are, per se. But it's, there's no right or wrong. Right? So it's, if that's what you want, it can be done. If, that's, if you don't care, that's fine. Then don't worry about it. So it's one of those things where there is no absolute, you have to do this, you have to do that. Just like with most things when it comes to dogs. Unless it's a working dog where you must, right? or something where it's good, where the dog understands a recall isn't optional, or things like that, because it's usually a safety issue. Um, for most scenarios, it's, there's no right or wrong. It's always just a matter of choice. What do you care about? What's important to you? Um, yeah. But that, that's an example of positive motivation gone wrong and then needed to be fixed. I and mean, still stay mostly within positive motivation to fix it, but it, it, it took a while to accomplish that. So it was not that easy because the dog is so food obsessed. So once you create that obsession, it takes longer to undo it's easier to not get into that and not even get that going in this extreme. But it's very common, especially, uh, I would say, in the service dog realm because it's the most common way people still train. And it's the easy way to start trying to doing it yourself and maybe get the dog to do, teach a bunch of tricks and then maybe he do some tasks. But then at some point you run into the problem of the dog does it beautifully when you're at home or when there's nothing else going on, there's no distractions. But he won't do it if there's any other motivation on the other side of the equation. And now the question becomes, well, can I live with that or not? And if it's a service dog, the answer is, well, no, it's not a service dog at that point. Right? It's just a, a pet that knows tricks. But a service dog has to emphasize or choose the work. 
before anything else. So it depends on what you do with your dog, if that's, um, if that's important or not. But that, these are scenarios, these are things to consider. So on the negative side, that is basically what's often used as negative reinforcement, but it's also um, punishment is the same thing, because ultimately the goal of any aversive in training is for the dog to never experience it again. That's the goal when you use any kind of aversive tool. The goal is to teach the dog to not do something or you must do something. It's not optional, but you can never. And it's, the goal is to teach it in a way that the tool no longer matters, that you don't need the tool anymore. And that goes then to how do you apply learning science correctly to this process so you achieve that goal, get rid of the tool ultimately, and don't cause problems for you or your dog or the relationship or create other issues like fear or aggression that can happen if you do it wrong or you do it poorly or you do it incorrectly or you do like stupid stuff. So there is, um, in terms of stupid stuff, here's an example that is not uncommon. I don't think we're doing it as much these days anymore, but even like in the early 2000s, um, there were studies done where they wanted to prove that e-collars are just horrible torture tools and one of the scenarios they set up is they would just randomly zap dogs with a shock collar in a field for no rhyme or reason. Do you really have to study that to know what the outcome is? What if I lock you in a room with a shock collar and randomly zap you with no rhyme or reason? You'd become a nervous wreck rather quickly. Right? So this is not, there's no mystery of what's going to happen. You're going to be messed up. And so will the dog be messed up. So this, that, that, to me, is actually not a scenario you should even like include in a study. There's no need for it. It's pretty straightforward. It's going to be a really bad outcome. Um, and those were, ironically, people who wanted to show positive reinforcements better, so they abuse dogs in this way. Um, but, yeah, okay. So some things just don't make sense, right? But if you, for example, set it up in a very clear fashion, where the dog can learn to avoid this altogether. He can learn, well, this is not an acceptable thing to my owner. If I do this, every time I do this, he will say this word and uh, will get a punishment and I don't like this. He's going to stop doing that because he's going to understand, well, that, that has a 100% penalty event associated with it. I don't care for the penalty events. I'm going to stop it. So now my dog no longer needs a penalty event, has stopped the behavior, and we're good. There's no damage to my dog. There's no damage to the relationship because it was very clear instruction of, well, you do this, I say that, and then this next thing happens. So it's a very clear understanding of you do A, I give you an indication that I was a mistake, and then B happens. And with a couple of repetitions, if it's done correctly, a dog just stops. They just stop. Well, it's like, okay, that's not a good idea. Let me not do that again. Let me not chase that car again. That's apparently not a good move. Um, because obviously we can't let him chase the car or the motorcycle or the kid on the skateboard or whatever the dog may be doing. So some things you just got to stop. And if you stop it correctly, everybody is fine. The dog is happy. The owner is happy. Everybody goes on about their day. And as a dog, that no longer does that thing that is dangerous to others. Um, so that's one. Right? That's but the dog learns to not experience that anymore by just stopping the behavior. It's in he, the dog is in total control of the experience, which is the important part. Huh? The dog learns to understand, I can avoid all of that if I just don't do that stupid thing. Okay. I can do without that then. 
And so he learns to avoid and we're good. Same thing with the other equation where the dog must. So let's say that would be the negative reinforcement aspect, which we talked about before, but I'm asking my dog to walk by my side. He wants to chase a squirrel. I'm using something he wants to escape and avoid to come back into the walking by the side operation, the healing or the loose walking or whatever we're calling it. And again, the dog learns to avoid the whole thing by just running into the leash and the collar a few times. Often you don't even need anything extreme. So the training collar and the leash often does it if you just do it right. And they'll just like, okay, A, it's not pleasant. B, I can avoid it if I don't do it. And C, it doesn't get, I don't get to the squirrel anyway, so it's pointless, right? So futility is a great teaching tool. Um, including that in training is usually helpful if you need the dog to understand. That's not going to happen. Uh, so as long as he has the illusion he may succeed in getting to the squirrel, he's probably going to keep trying unless I uh, make the price tag too unpleasant. But if he learns quickly, well, no matter what I try, I'm never going to get to that squirrel, futility will speed that up quite a bit. So it will be, again, the dog learns to completely avoid. And that would be the negative motivation part. So it matters tremendously on how you do it. Um, it is per se easier to mess the negative motivation up than it is to mess the positive motivation up. You need a better skill set to do the negative motivation part right. But by no means is it super complicated. If you just understand the science of learning behind all of that, it's not a problem to do it correctly. But you have to learn that. I had to learn that. Every dog trainer who's good at this had to learn that it's not something you're born with just knowing. It's not something that happens by just watching a bunch of YouTube videos. It's something you have to actually learn, um, probably at a dog trainer school, a dog trainer course, something of a higher level where you just get taught properly. And when, once you have that knowledge, you'll see clearly what the path is, how it goes, and you see it a few times going about, and then you just have confidence in knowing, well, that's how this always works because it follows the principles that we've learned over 50, 60 years. And it's not, it's not something that fell just out of a tree yesterday. We've learned that stuff through the scientific process over many, many decades. There's no mystery here. It's not new information. Um, okay, so this is the motivation. So we have a positive motivation. The dog wants and wants to have and wants to get and wants to do. It could be food. It could be playing. It could be a petting. It could be chasing livestock. It could be... Um, chase a squirrel, whatever. I mean, it could be a reward to let the dog chase a squirrel, potentially, right? So sit down, stay calm, bam, chase the squirrel. So would, again, be in the motiv positive, positive motivation side. And then a negative motivation, like avoiding something, uh, successfully avoiding something and learning how to never experience that again is the, the motivation to avoid. And when you combine those two together, that's when you really get reliability and really good behaviors in the long run with a dog that is happy, that is um, completely at ease around the things that bothered him before that he wanted to pursue. There's no like anxiety or fear or like just lip licking or nervousness or so. None of these things will happen if it's done right and if it's set up right. Uh, and set up right, just like, it's a, I mean, every, every dog's different, every scenario's different, but just like it's a general measure you want to be like 90, 95% on the, on the positive motivation side in the training program and 5, maybe 10% on the avoidance motivation side of the program. So that would be the proper balance. 
if it's reversed, like it's 95% aversive and every once in a while you get a cookie, that's a problem. Right? There's people like that out there. But that's not good, obviously. That's not how it should be. You should reinforce, you should motivate, you should make your dog want to do it. And then only interfere with a negative motivation, avoid, escape, and don't, as necessary, as needed towards specific things where my dog just can't resist, despite everything else. And if you do it subtly, with subtly, uh, there's no problem in the execution. You can see tons of videos on our YouTube channel where you see versions of that. And it looks so uneventful. It looks so uh, harmless that you probably don't even think of it as being um, something like that. Because it doesn't look like that unless I tell you, well, this is just what happened there. You're like, oh, that's it? Yeah, he bumped into the leash and then uh, he stopped. And then he learned not to do that. And like, oh, that's it? That's it? <laughs> so, uh, um, so it can it can be that simple. It doesn't have to be like this is not this, this bad bad thing you always hear and some people will make it out to be. It's just a smooth process that has a little touch up here and there, just like you do with any child in your race or any person that's like generally we go about our lives and reward every once in a while I get a reprimand, right? I get a speeding ticket because you drove too fast. And like, okay, <laughs> settle down. I'll stick to the speed limit for the next month or so before I forget about all of that. <laughs> or something like this, right? So every once in a while I get a slap on the wrist for something you just shouldn't be doing. Uh, not, not physically slap on the wrist necessarily, but hopefully you know what I mean. Um, but that that's how we should also train the dogs. We should motivate the heck out of everything. Um, we should reward the heck out of everything, but also understand what the limitations are for our dog and then interfere, intervene in the correct manner in the other way and say, no, you can't do this. This is off the menu. Or, no, you must do that. You can't access this. You have to be here. Um, you have to. You must. This is not optional behavior. So if, if you strike that balance of the 95% positive motivation with the 5% or so negative motivation or avoidance motivation, you're going to have a volleyball trained dog who is reliable and you're going to have a very happy dog who has freedoms, who can be off-leash, who can go out there, who can do things, and who can enjoy life and be in a field and be on a trail, and because you know he will actually come back if that's what you train him to do correctly. Right? So it, it enriches the dog's life, it gives them more liberties, it gives them more life experiences. They can be out in the wild on the trail, which I haven't done in a while, but I love doing that. I'm planning to go back to it this summer. So. It's a wonderful thing to take your dogs out in the wild, but you need to be able to to have some level of a control, or control is maybe the wrong, well, it's not that word, but control or assurance or understanding that my dog will come back when I call him, especially when he's like 50 yards ahead, he's looking at something that may be interesting to chase. I'm like, no, you got to come back now. I don't want you to run into those bushes. I don't, I don't know what, what a coyote pack may be looking. So, um, so that that's... That's the motivation talk. Right? So it should be mostly positive, but don't shy away from the negative aspects of learn to escape and avoid, and also just don't, so the avoid alone part um, through a penalty process. That, that teaches the dog to not do certain things. Now you can be on the sofa, just don't eat the sofa cushion. <laughs> you can be in the yard, just don't eat my sprinkler heads or dig up a flower bed. Right? So it's about dealing with those problems head-on where we give them all the freedom we can give them 
but just like targetly, specifically intervene in a very narrow, meticulous way where something just must be stopped because that's not okay. That's not okay. Can't have you jump up on grandma. You're going to knock her over. Huh? You can jump up on me. That's fine. But you can't jump up on grandma. You can teach him that. But you got to just then targetly go after what grandma's a problem. Maybe the five-year-old's a problem. The adults in the home, go ahead. Right? So it's you pick and choose what's, what's right for you. And then you have to just apply the the negative motivation correctly. Avoid the leash popper, avoid the aversive, escape that. Learn to avoid it all completely by not jumping on grandma. And he will be happily coming to grandma's feet and get petted down there instead of lunging on grandma and knocking her to the ground. So that's it. Um, so that's, that's what I think is important to understand about motivation. There's positive motivation and then there's negative motivation. There's motivation to have and negative motivation to avoid. And they're both equally important. They're important for us. They're important for dogs. They're important for any living thing. Right? Why doesn't drive everybody just as fast as they want on the freeway? Because they don't want to get a ticket or they don't want to lose their driver's license. Or they just care about their fellow drivers and don't want to hurt them. Right? There's also that. Um, but there's a motivation to avoid something in that. So a motivation to avoid is not a bad thing. It's not a, you're taking a cold because you don't want to be cold. You're trying to avoid being cold. You come out of the sun sooner because you don't want to get too hot or sunburn. It's a motivation to avoid a sunburn. So motivation to avoid is a completely natural and normal thing in life. It is completely unavoidable. It makes the world work better. It is how we all function. I don't know what the other example we had before was like you, you see the like the, the sad animal commercial on TV every Christmas, donate to the SPCA or whatever. Um, you write a check so you feel better, so you're avoiding feeling bad. It's, it's that kind of thing. So it's avoiding bad things is not a bad thing. <laughs> so avoiding feeling bad is not a bad thing. Um, escaping and avoiding things that you don't care for is not a bad thing. It makes your life better. So. Think of it in the same terms with your dog. It makes his life better to not do certain things because you can give him more freedom. She can have more fun out there. You can do more things with your dog if these couple of things are not being done. So motivation goes both ways. Motivation is what it's all about. Motivation is what we need for and uh, first and foremost. And you build it up as much as you possibly can before you do anything on the avoidance side of things. Uh, so it's positive motivation to one, 90-95% before you targetly intervene with these little nudges here and there. Okay, I hope this was helpful and informative and enjoyed it. And I'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>